0: and Welcome to Talk the Thrones. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at the Joining me as always is ringer senior staff writer Joanna Robinson, along with the only person who takes longer to walk across a room than Viserys Targaryen. It's
1: <laughs> Mal. Uh, Re- <laughs> Roo- fin- <laughs> Hi, how's it going? Oh boy. Guys, let's drain our cups to three strong hosts. Woo!
0: Oh, what a great episode of uh, House of the Dragon we just got. A lot of stuff happened. We're going to break down all of it. Joanna, what was the most important thing that we saw in this eighth episode of season one?
2: I feel like I know what other people's answer is going to be, so I'm going to zag, and I'm going to say it's how chaos broke out as soon as Viserys left dinner. Like how that's the only thing holding all of this together, clearly. What do you think, Mel?
1: Uh, That's my pick, too, Oh, actually, because I think all of the other picks are... Pretty deeply connected to that moment and what we saw. You know, if uh, our guy, Viserys the first Targaryen, has in fact taken his final breath, then if everything goes to shit the second he leaves the room, what happens when he leaves this mortal coil? That feels relevant. Also, the last thing that he did before tapping out is confuse his wife for his daughter. And talk about the prince that was promised. Uh, Not ideal.
2: A classic (laughs) Molly Rubin smuggle. That's the pick I thought you were going to do. Well, they're all connected.
0: (laughs) You were like, I'm not going to pick the one
2: that everybody's
0: going to say, but I will say the one everybody's going to say. So just so everybody knows, we record these a little bit before the actual episode airs. So we have not seen scenes from next week. If it turns out that episode nine is Viserys' funeral... Which we all expect it to be, because what else could he contribute to this wonderful world we live in?
1: Our guy is arced out. You know, obviously, <laughs> I think we all
0: think that that was Viserys' death breath. But
1: when the screen cuts to black, Chris, and you reach out and you call out to your long lost love, it's the pawing of the empty air for me. It's that, usually that feels, the end.
2: That feels like a final moment. But Chris,
1: you're ready for a you're ready for a fake out. If you next still believe week, in Viserys?
2: Viserys? is like on FanDuel
0: doing same game parlays <laughs> for a tournament. I, you know, I just fool me once. That's all I'm saying. I think it was like after episode three. I was like, so Viserys is dying. We should take that into account. Um, I want to get into everything here. We can do the recap really fast. And then I want to jump into that, to those dying words that Viserys had there. Uh, so in this episode, the sea snake has gotten himself an infection and is in failing health. Uh, the royalty of Westeros engage in the time-honored tradition of power-grabbing in the face of tragedy. Luke, the son of Harwin and Rhaenyra, but publicly the son of Lenor and Rhaenyra, is next in line for the Driftmark throne. But Corlys's brother Vaemon has something to say about that. The matter must go before the crown, which is actually Queen Alicent at this point, since Viserys is basically just a satchel of dust. <laughs> Rhaenyra and Daemon, who BT dubs, recently unearthed some more dragon eggs. Visit KL to solidify Luke's claim to the Driftmark throne, and they find the old bag of bones Viserys barely able to get out of bed. The most important thing about these scenes, about this show, and this entire universe that George R.R. R. Martin has created is that you never count out the triarchy. They have a habit <laughs> of resurging... At the oh worst God. possible moment we Your have guys. never, ever seen. I don't know what their political ideology is. I don't know what their goals are. The triarchy have made more appearances on this show than dragons in some ways.
1: Viserys <laughs> managing to say when he can barely get out a single intelligible sentence, wait, we won that war years ago is one of the funniest things and that ever like, no, happened on my television. Lord, four years ago, incredible. they started popping up again. <laughs> This is, I think, the <laughs>
2: funniest episode of House of the Dragon so far. Yeah. Uh, like, big time. So what happens next is
0: a massive game of musical Driftmark chairs with Rhaenyra swearing to her mm-hmm. that she didn't have Laenor killed, technically true, and offering her sons to Damon's and Lanna's daughters as a blockbuster trade for the ages. The <laughs> High Towers prefer to have Corlys's brother take over rather than Luke. There is a hearing of various petitioners where we find Otto sitting in the Iron Throne in the king's absence until Viserys comes out of the locker room like Willis Reed and slowly (laughs) makes his way to his rightful piece of furniture, the one that nicked him in the first place, giving him this lifelong debilitating leprosy infection. He says that the matter has already been settled. Vayman loudly disagrees and calls Rhaenyra's sons bastards and Rhaenyra a whore uh, much to the delight of Damon, my favorite moment in this show so far is Damon being like, "Say it," oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so Damon chops his head off, uh, continuing the trend of unprosecuted <laughs> knife crime in King's Landing. <laughs> Things settle down after the beheading in the throne room. Everyone gathers for dinner. Viserys makes what is basically a dying wish that the entire family start getting along, and Alicent and Rhaenyra kind of go along with it. Alicent and Rhaenyra finally hug it out, and it's really going well until one-eyed Aemon Targaryen stands up and makes a few double entendre-laden toasts, and it all goes off. That night, Viserys, thinking he's talking to his daughter, tells his wife about the Song of Ice and Fire, convincing her that her Aegon, a true piece of shit, is the person to unite the realm against the evil in the North. This will, I'm sure, cause no confusion going forward. Aegon takes a couple of last breaths, as Alicent, doting wife that she is. Just beats it away from him, and we assume Aegon is dead. That's my assumption. So, Joe,
2: Oh Viserys, Viserys, yeah, yeah. Sorry, he got yeah. unfortunately still going. Aegon unfortunately two,
0: still visiting two. chambermaids everywhere. Yeah, mm, two Aegons uh, now,
2: double right. the Aegon. That's yeah. right, because yeah.
0: because yeah. Daemon and Nera have an Aegon as well. So, Joe. Yeah, I want to talk about the entirety of the next however many decades of conflict being kicked (laughs) off by an extremely high (laughs) dying man confusing his wife for his daughter. Is this in the books? And because my big question was like, you know, in the beginning of this series, you guys were like, this is new to have Viserys telling Rhaenyra about the Song of Ice and Fire. So now multiple people know about this. What's going on here?
2: Yeah, this is obviously not in the book because the prophecy is not in the book as far as we know, like not overtly anyway. And um, I think we talked a lot last week about maybe the show putting a thumb on the scale for sympathy for the, the Blacks. And this feels like an evening of that scale because like whatever Allison does next, she's doing presumably under the... Misinterpretation that Viserys has asked her to put their uh, shitty son on the throne, right? So she's honoring the dying wishes—we assume dying wishes—of you know the king. Can I just read to you because I know you love it when we read passages from the book? I actually can do. I, just- I find them quite illuminating. <laughs> I just think it's really beautiful the way it's put in the book, right? Afterward, the king sent them away, pleading weariness and a tightness in his chest. Then Viserys of House Targaryen, the first of his name, king of the Andals, the Rhoynar and the First Men, lord of the Seven Kingdoms, and protector of the realm, closed his eyes and went to sleep. He never woke. He was 52 years old. Rough. Wait, and had, what? Yeah. <laughs> 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 and then, not 152, but 52 years old, and had rain over and had reigned oh, over, over most of Westeros for 26 years. Then the storm broke and the dragons danced. Uh, one of the best lines in the whole 52? book. 52. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bills 52. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: is wild stuff. Thank you, Joe. That that is beautiful. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I guess my. I mean, like, I'm very confused. I'm not confused. I think this is really interesting.
2: Well, yeah, it's, well, it's a deeply added complication to the whole, again, like the show has been enjoying adding these deeper complications to our understanding of, you know, who's, who's in the right here. And I think what the show really wants us to be caught up in is that everyone is right from a certain point of view and everyone is wrong from a certain point of view. And I do have questions about whether or not, like both of you, Per our text, seem to interpret this as uh, Alicent now understands the prophecy. I'm not no, sure. I don't, I don't think so. Th- okay, I'm not sure it's quite yeah, that, I but I think Alicent believes that Viserys' dying wish is that her Aegon son, Tegel. Aegon, sit the throne. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's right. I think yeah. there's like
1: a 4% chance, maybe let's say 3% chance that Alicent actually leaves that conversation understanding the prophecy. I would say it's not impossible, just given that Viserys has drunkenly revealed to Alicent in a prior episode of this television show that he is a dreamer and talked about the roles of dreaming in House Targaryen. It's possible that she left that conversation thinking about that, holding on to that, and is making a connection here like, oh, maybe he's actually talking about a a prophetic dream here. We also know that I think this is a key distinction when we talk about this as a show invention or a show ad, a new reveal. That is specifically about Aegon the Conqueror having this dream and this dream and this prophecy fueling his conquest of Westeros. The prince that was promised well predates Aegon. Right, and right. his existing lore in the universe. So Viserys utters those words. He says the prince that was promised. And so I would just say it's not impossible that Allison, who we know is like a diligent st- uh, student and studying texts and stuff like that, that that would ping something and that she could piece this together. I would say that the, it is infinitely more likely, though, that, and I think this is what we all believe, that she comes out of that on the heels of a little bit of a return to the state of peace, stating that she had felt uneasy about the subterfuge that was playing out, legitimately appalled by Aegon, say, to the point where she says to him, you are no son of mine, and then toasts Rhaenyra and says, you will make a fine queen, and we could talk later about how much of the, the toasts that they share are sincere, and how much are about this, uh, this, this play acting to make peace, and maybe it's a combination, but that Alicent leaves that hearing that Viserys is saying in his final moments, you're the one who has to ensure that the realm stays together by Aegon, If everybody didn't have the same fucking name, folks, this wouldn't be an issue, but they do. That Aegon, our kid, has to be the one on the throne. And the other thing that I think really reinforces that interpretation is in the, the Vaiman succession petition sequence, when Viserys comes in, he says that the only person equipped to clarify Corlys's wishes is his wife, Rhaenys. And so this puts Alicent in a position now to say, from the king's own mouth... He has said that the only person who would be able to clarify a succession plan and desire is his wife. I'm telling you, the last thing he said to me. I think,
2: I think at the very least, Allison's going to come out of this conflicted because I do believe in the sincerity of her like wanting to make peace with Ranira at that dinner. Like, Allison and Rhaenyra seem the most sincere. Out I of also anyone believe at in her dinner. sincerity
0: of being like, My, my son is no son yeah. of mine. Yeah. <laughs> and he's a, a piece of are shit. We, sure yeah. we want this guy to be king. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so now we have basically two different factions of this family who are in different ways aware of this prophecy. And it doesn't even matter how aware they are because now they're also... I think used- we can
1: still say... Let's just say that Allison is not aware of the prophecy. I think that is the safer, clearer way to go. That she okay. just thinks that Viserys wants Aegon to be heir and has said make this happen, and that her sense of duty and like adhering to a vow that guides her throughout everything we've seen so far would kick in again there and com- complicate that that rekindled warmth with Rhaenyra. Right. I, th- I think it's like accurate to say both sides
2: feel convinced that they have, from the word of Viserys, that their claim. Yes. Aegon or Rhaenyra is the only incorrect claim. And
0: crucially, I would imagine since Rhaenyra was like, I have to take my kids home. I'll come back on Dragonback in a bit. Viserys dies. There is this vacuum. There is like a lack of physical presence from Rhaenyra in King's Landing at a moment when, you know, they can install Aegon if that so, so comes to pass. What I was curious about, Mal, is... Viserys took great pains to explain the importance of what he was sharing with Rhaenyra. And if I remember correctly, showed her the inscription on that dagger, right? Like there is a degree of like, could you say receipts that Rhaenyra has, like proof of purchase on this throne that she's like, look, this goes beyond just like chess chess moves of which family is in control. Like I'm supposed to stand up against this yet to be determined evil coming out of the North which is also like really tough for anybody in the North being like, I'm not the bad guy here. I'm like, <laughs> I guess that, that's that's a stark problem, though, yeah.
1: Why don't you reach out?
2: Let's talk about this. <laughs> They're like, fr- yeah. further north, <laughs> higher, not
1: yeah, Exactly. We're lower um, north. If is looking for receipts, all she needs to say is, my father, the king, publicly declared me heir. You all bent the knee. He never changed his mind. And mere moments ago, in the throne room, was advocating for my line and my children. How's that for receipts? Still, it's a good question. And I think it's the other reason that Joe and I feel pretty confident that Alicent leaves that room saying, I I understand the wish of the king, not I understand Aegon the Conqueror, Aegon the Dragon's secret (laughs) prophecy, is because, you know, we've talked about this a lot, like the... Unreliable narrator nature of fire and blood. Not everything that we get in that text is the actual thing that happened. That's that's fine and good. I do think it's safe to say, though, that if widely and far across the land, in court, in King's Landing and beyond... Rhaenyra and Alicent were shouting out loud, there is a prophecy about saving the world from the apocalyptic winter and I or my my child is the one who has to fend it off, that would have made it into the history books. So I just don't think that Rhaenyra is going to actually ever say this out loud. And I think if Alicent knows, she would have no choice. And so like, I think this will remain something that Rhaenyra guards pretty closely. I think we're probably going to see her tell Daemon. That feels right. like we need to get more people in her confidence. But... I don't think that Rhaenyra to the receipts question could say, like, let me put this blade in the fire and show all of you what burden I'm inheriting, because like, actually, how does that help her? If she does that, then it's just then it just allows Alicent to say, yeah, and that's about my kid. And also, let me tell you about this other dream my husband told me about where he said he saw the Conqueror's crown on yeah. his son. Well, I, like I, just, I don't know that it helps her if she does I, that.
2: Yeah, I think it's also important to, like, where is the dagger right now? It's with, like, it's uh, Team Harris Allison. Because right. yeah. like, the camera has, pans
1: down to it. Yeah, yeah, Allison yeah.
2: has the dagger, first of all. And secondly... um, I, I I would love a scene where Rhaenyra shoves it in the fire and Allison's like, Who's to say you didn't just do that yesterday? Like, how do you prove that this is an ancient inscription? You know? So that's, that's- my, that leads me to my next question of what
0: I thought was secretly the most fascinating part of this episode was a brief moment in the beginning when Damon and Rhaenyra are arriving and most of the Targaryen iconography has been stripped from King's Landing and replaced with that of the Faith of the Seven. And To me, that would also suggest Allison's skepticism, I guess, about dreamers and prophecies and knives with inscriptions on them and all sorts of things that Rhaenyra might try to use for her claim because she's obviously trying to move things away from the traditional old Valyria way of seeing things. Am I right?
2: I mean, it it would seem like her interior decoration would definitely... uh Seem that way. Yeah. Uh, I did note that the Targaryen uh, fuck murals are still going strong in Viserys' room. Well, I mean, she's like, an art lover. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but elsewhere, they're gone. So I feel like the last, like, orgy murals are in Viserys' room. And then once once he's dead, all bets are off. But um, I absolutely, Alicent is cloaking herself of the seven-point star that she's wearing ostentatiously. Like, all of that's there. But that feeds back into what Rhaenyra said last week about sort of, like, the, the, the veil of her righteousness, that piety that she dresses herself in. Because, as Mallory has pointed out many times, like when we theorize about this, like ever since we saw a promo photo of oh. Olivia Cook with that giant seven-pointed star on her, we're like, okay, is this going to be a religious war? Which isn't necessarily in the book, but is that what they're building up for for Alicent? And then Mallory's pointing out, she's like, it's it's hard to be pi- on your like high horse of piety, Alicent, if you married your son to your daughter, which she right. did. Like Aegon right. and Helena are married and have kids, as we find out in this episode. And so it's like, um, what it means is that Allison is pious maybe when it serves her. Politically uh, a, pious, yeah. This is a great Allison episode, I will say, for my, like, empathy for and I felt for her and a lot in this episode, so I'm not trying to, like, paint her as an out-and-out villain at all. But I do think that piety is uh, sometimes convenient for her when it's convenient, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I also think it makes... Not that she was in any way not a, a, a very clear threat before but it like, crystallizes the second they walk in how the nature of that threat has evolved and what the, I think crucially what the threat could look like moving forward because there are a couple things right there's you see the seven pointed star everywhere Damon has that great line about "Allison, I have no doubt it was an act of the purest mercy but tell me for the king's suffering did the maesters also order the removal of Targaryen heraldry like it's it's just incredible and Rhaenyra says that she, it, she says it would be nice to be home but she barely recognizes it I love that Daemon's sitting in
0: that scene. It's like, dude, she's the queen and the other one is pregnant. Like, you should just get up and let her sit. Our guy is
1: always either in a chair or leaning against a wall and I'm here for it and it's amazing. But like, think back to season two of Game of Thrones and Joffrey's Uh, interior redesign of the throne room, when somebody is changing the seat of power, the red keep to match their personal preference, like it is a sign that something fundamental has shifted about who is in power, who is in control. And I think like when we, when we process how that would make Rhaenyra and Damon feel walking in or how it could potentially play out when they assess the threat that house high tower poses in the future, it's a couple things like I think that everything Joe said about that cloak of piousness is essential. House Hightower, though, has like a longstanding history with the Faith of the Seven, both seated in Old Town. The the, the, the Faith is still centered in Old Town right now at this point in the timeline. So you walk in, you see the Seven-Pointed Star and Allison's body, you see it all around you. It's like, the faith could be a powerful ally for Alicent at any point. And that's a huge, 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 huge risk for Rhaenyra.
0: My Westerosi religious studies degree has expired. So I was oh no. wondering if there was a... I quick,
2: thought those were for life. No, you know, no. it was it was kind
0: of, it was a University of Phoenix thing. So I don't think that it the, right. the degree really stuck. Got it. But the faith of the seven, is there like an analog... Would you say for? I mean, our own human history that like they're trying to sort of say like was it like the the Protestant Reformation? Like what what I would is say
2: Catholicism? Catholicism
0: and then like Targaryens' beliefs are more what like old world bacchanalian kind of like we're superheroes and we can do what we want.
2: There, it's tough because like so there are the old gods within Westeros, but right. the Targaryens basically believe themselves to be the gods is sort of my, you know, and and it's been a constant shaky detente between the church and the Targaryens where the Targaryens have tried to say like, okay, we're conquering Westeros. This is the established church. Let's find a way to sort of get along and and pretend. This is why that scene with like young Rhaenyra, young Alicent in the Sept was so important at the beginning of the season, right? Because Alicent...
0: Is, oh, she's like pray with me, right? Is, yeah, and is right.
2: like, "How does one pray again?" Because as Targaryen, like, yeah. I might be fluent in High Valyrian, but I know nothing about the church at all right. because this isn't what we believe in or what we do. We'll 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 acknowledge the power of the church, and and then in some in some instances in Targaryen. Royal history. There's an open war with the church, and so it's it's a it's a really complicated relationship.
1: Yeah, and like you have Alicent invoking the father and saying a prayer at dinner, in addition to all of the iconography, populating the Red Keep, and you have Rhaenyra and Daemon six years prior getting married in Valyrian blood and binding ritual, not even in the light of the Seven. So, like, I think the point about Aegon and Helena being a brother-sister-sibling-incestuous marriage and the hypocrisy of that, given Allison's personal feelings on those, uh, quote, queer customs of the Targaryens is is germane, but also she's in a position to basically do what Jaehaerys did when he agreed to the doctrine of exceptionalism with the faith and say, okay, we're abiding by the, the, the agreement that House Targaryen reached with the faith of the seven. So this one thing is all inside of a desire to adhere to the faith and inside of a desire to be aligned with the faith. Rhaenyra is not interested in that. And so if you were going to choose a side, you, the faith, choose us. And I think it's clear that Alicent is, is trying to like, that that would be projected if you are walking in and seeing that.
0: So Joe, you brought up a really good point where Alicent has made a lot of compromises in the intervening years since she first fell out with Rhaenyra when they were essentially kids. and. One of them is marrying her son and her daughter together. And another is giving the chambermaid the same tea that the maester gave Rhaenyra after her night allegedly with Damon, but in reality with Kristen. Is this supposed to be a suggestion that she's just a great political operator? Or is it that she's like slowly starting to lose her like moral center as she gets older?
2: I like it's. It was a really fascinating scene, right? Because there And not are- too subtly, like, obviously
0: echoing, like, the language of Me Too about, like, she's like, I believe you, but, you know, like, there was- Right. It was obviously, like, trying to kind of push some buttons there.
2: It gave me strong Siobhan Roy at the end of season two of Succession, yes. you yeah. know, that that harrowing conversation. It's also, in its language, meant to reflect a lot of the conversations we saw between Cersei and Sansa in early Game of Thrones. Like, that is definitely there, her calling her sweetling and all this stuff like that. But unlike Cersei, I genuinely believe Allison does feel for this young girl. Um, and we see it in her. She's Holding Aegon more accountable, I think, than Cersei ever held Joffrey in the next scene. Not, not the greatest parenting move to scream at your misbehaving child and saying you are no son of mine. But I don't, I don't know that I read it as entirely hypocrisy. But I think it is um, really important to note the difference between her kids and Rhaenyra's kids. I know, and them, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just, just a few slight differences, right? And, and like how, like uh, however much empathy we have for Al- Alicent, and I have plenty in this episode. I still also have to judge her if she's got a kid like Aegon, like you know, and Aemond, like you know, and and whether that's just like it was tough for her to parent children that were born out of a marriage that was forced upon her with an old like decaying man like then I can find empathy for her there but at the end of the day like Aegon is a monstrous kid and that is reflective of of her and her parenting choices and so um I don't I don't know that I felt that that was I I I was glad to see from Alicent some genuine empathy for this young girl, even as she's doing her duty, I suppose, which is covering up her son's um, absolute bullshit.
1: What do you think, Mal? I I agree. I mean, I think that she seems to feel for Diana sincerely, even as she is then also intimidating her. I know you won't. Here's a bag of money. Here's this tea. Drink it. You must do what I say, which is horrifying. And then what does Allison actually say to Aegon as she is screaming at him, she says, think of the shame on your wife on me. How can you keep carrying on like this, especially on a day like today? So that doesn't mean she doesn't feel anything genuinely inside of her for Diana and feel horribly more broadly for what women are subjected to in the realm. I think that's very present here. But And I think when she's thinking about her daughter, about Helena, she's also thinking about it in those terms, like a woman who needs to be in a certain marriage because of what it means politically and for the path to power and how horrible that is now for the rest of that life, right? But also thinking about what Aegon has just done through the lens of the shame it would bring on the family and the way that it would complicate their ambition, like, that's awful. That's horrific. (laughs) Well,
2: no real, no real person involved, right? Again, to cite Succession, right? Like this is a uh, not my belief, obviously, yeah, but this is the like going to be the ongoing belief of, um, and then you know this is in Fire and Blood this idea that Aegon was just you know yeah. assaulting the maid servants around the the castle because he is I don't know if you picked up not a good dude, not, yeah, not great, well, Aegon. Also, I so I wanted to ask about these kids because. And I, yeah. I, I'm
0: sure that Ryan Connell and the creators and the and the show and this and the writers are doing this on purpose, where the Rhaenyra's children are ostracized because of being supposedly bastards with a capital B, and Allison's kids are just bastards, like they're just <laughs> like these, like especially right. the sons and and Aemon, yeah, not, not Helena, not fine. Helena. Yeah, yeah, she's cool, um, she just wants great to play dinner with toast from
1: Helena, yeah, <laughs> honestly,
0: but. Aemon essentially restarts the civil war between these two families. You know what I mean? Like he gets up there, and he has had a like miraculous growth spurt. First of all, just completely passing Aegon on the left in the yeah. height division. Definitely yeah.
1: inherited Viserys's genes of aging thirty years for every three that <laughs> pass.
0: So. I think notably is essentially Kristen Cole's equal in the training, right? And as as, I puts the blade to his throat and is like, I got you on this one. So physically, obviously very able and clearly doesn't care about making uh, first of all, certainly doesn't care about honoring his father's wishes about there being peace Uh, and is got something driving him. That's pretty dark and pretty disturbing. Can you, Mal, is there anything I need to know about the six years since we last saw Eamon say I got a dragon. It was a fair trade, right. and and now when he is apparently grown into the ideal stretch for six <laughs> ten, stretching the court, you know, like able to crash uh, the boards, God. able to handle and pl- make plays.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: he's got it all. Um,
1: cu- couple things. One, my note for everyone involved at the dinner: maybe don't serve pig, given the pink dread and the. Traumatic childhood incident because as soon as the pig comes out and that was amazing yes. scene choreography of Viserys being carried out as the pig is being carried in and the way that Luke looks over the pig and smirks Luke. and laughs and just incites that rage in Aegon and of course Jace calling back to their shared youth everybody is just looking for one excuse to act and they don't even really need a real excuse right Amond. So here's, here's one, one line from Fire and Blood that I think pretty well sums up the, the growth spurt and the evolution here. Quote, Prince Amon, despite the loss of his eye, had become a proficient and dangerous swordsman under the tutelage of Sir Kristen Cole, but remained a wild and willful child, hot-tempered and unforgiving. That's kind of the essence of it, and that comes across here. And I think my, one of my favorite moments in the episode that was like in the quieter, quicker Bucket, not the huge set pieces, which were incredible. When Vaemond, with the House Hightower guards, comes in and the doors open in the yard, and everybody turns to look, this is after Aemond very creepily calls out to his nephews and asks if they want to train. We get an overhead shot of the yard. Everybody is turning toward the door to look at what's coming. What's Amon doing? He's going to get another shield. Like, this is, this guy's always readying for the fight. Always.
2: The moment... It was almost super it was spooky. So like, you know, Jace little Jason Luke or taller Jason Luke, by the way, Harry Harry Collette's the actor who's playing 16-year-old Jace. Um, and I looked at that kid. I was like, I bet that kid was a Billy Elliot, and he was. Was he? So yeah, yeah. I was like, I feel like I can smell the Billy Elliots now Do, as they popularize. Because I
0: don't think that kid was a Billy Elliot. That kid
2: was never a Billy yeah. Elliot. Uh, yeah, that kid. That's that's you and Mitchell. It's funny because um, I really he seems feel like, like he was in Gangs of London or something. <laughs> like it was not
0: Billy Elliot.
2: He he and the, the actress who played Helena were both in the Last Kingdom, the Netflix show. Um, but it's it's interesting because Tom Glencarney, carney who plays Aegon and I think it's Fia Sabin who plays Helena. I think they both look a lot like Olivia Coleman in the face. Um, a lot. And then you and Mitchell, who plays Eamon Targaryen, I think they cast him to look like Matt Smith. Because as you like might have seen as they sort of like, you see. It's it's meant to be that the Team Greens has their own Daemon now, and it's Aemon Targaryen, yeah. right? And at like, the moment it, when they're staring each other, yeah, down. they're squaring yeah. off at the end of the dinner or whatever. And but I, did, you know, yeah,
0: in the, the rule of like King of the Court, I, I in, in a basketball term, not in a, a royal family term, I did take note that Aemon is now on the same level as Kristen, who kicked Damon's yes. ass ten years ago or 12, sixteen years ago, whenever it was.
2: And I love that sequence because like he's training with Kristen, Luke and Jace are sort of like, what's all this then? Walk up and then they, and they, and Eamon turns, they see the eye patch and like, oh shit, that's Eamon. Oh fuck. Right. And they have this, like, they, they have this awful moment. And then Eamon never looks at them, is like fighting Kristen the whole time, wins the thing. And then like shoots his one eye over at them, like says cousins. And like, he knows that they're there and like has clocked them despite never like pausing to look at them. It is terrifying like this this guy is always scanning the floor floor, Uh, like great court vision uh, (laughs) incredible stuff and I think I think what's important about I mean Eamon we all agree looks way older than the other kids but I think it's important this is another six-year time jump we get all new actors for the kids um We don't know, Mallory and I, for certain, but I think doing math on what's left, I don't think we're going to do another major major time jump. I think this is it. So these, like, all these actors gathered at dinner here, these are our actors going forward, right? And what I love about, like, I think Jace especially, our, our, our Billy Elliot kid, is, like, that actor is, like, 18, 19, he and he's supposed to be 16. He looks like a 16 year old to me, so he looks like the kind of boy soldier that Jon Snow and Rob Stark were supposed to be. Kit Harrington and Richard Madden were like in their mid 20s when they were cast, and they never they never felt like children to me, but, but they Jay's, never really they kind of
0: massaged that. They were like, yeah. These guys could be like warriors, but they're also supposed to be kids, and like, right. right,
2: yeah. And like, so when you when you th- when you when Rob Stark leads a war at the beginning of Game of Thrones. This is a boy king. Like, this is the boy king of the North, right? And But Jace actually does feel like a boy. And so thinking of what, you know, whatever's to come as, you know, the dragon's dance, like,
1: it's it's scary to think of these kids involved in all of that. Yeah, he's still, like, genuinely excited to run through the training yard. I was so struck by Luke, who is only supposed to be canonically a year younger than Jace, though seems... Like the gap much is, feels a little <laughs> bit bigger to me than the show. Yeah, he's like the it. It looks so much smaller, and that was such a. Like a moment that you can relate to when you're a, you're a kid, everything seems huge to you, and you go back and you're like, "This is just a room." Oh, I'm taller than my locker now, and like it just does remind you how small they've been for all of this. And like, I don't think
0: I was ever taller than my locker, but that's that's my <laughs> costume.
1: Yeah, Jace is just like trying to get better at his homework, like really frustrated Ooh, with himself yeah. that yeah. he can't learn High Valerian. And like, what is the, the the language that they're translating? What is it about? It's about the conquest. Like it's about this fabled these fabled figures from House Targaryen's history and a war of might and strength. Like it's, I, I agree with Joe. Like you really felt the youth there in a way that was helpful. And then it's like shocking when you swing to the other side and you hear when Helena comes in to the Alice and Aegon scene and, and, and Alice is is, is confronting Aegon about Diana. Helena comes in and asks where Diana is and says she's supposed to dress the children. Like, not only have Elena and Aegon gotten married in the intervening time, they have kids now.
0: So, you, like... I was surprised Allison wasn't like, you know, Diana's not around, but you should use Talia. She's right here. You know, Talia? Oh, <laughs> Talia my
1: God. always available. Always I'm ready. Great. I'm really glad you said that because that's the other thing. Like, Talia is the one who brings the moon tea, and then Talia is the one who goes to Masaria yeah. at the end. So, like...
0: I want I, I want, to get to Masaria. But I, I, you know, I did. I, I we will get something. Sorry, because she. I was like, is she just off this show now? Like, I wasn't really sure what was going on with that. But uh, we, she does pop up in this episode. Here's the thing: I just wanted like more of like a broad conversation topic that I thought was kind of cool. One of the issues that I think I've had with the show over the course of the season has been how confined it is to the th- sort of chambers of power. Like, it hasn't really done a lot with the exception of the naming day feast where we're out in the forest and stuff like that. Yeah, we go to come some different lands. We go to Driftmark, we go to Dragonstone, we go to King's Landing. But for the most part, it's in these um, very powerful rooms. And I know that Game of Thrones did that as well, but it had a lot of like Flea Bottom and it had a lot of like, here we are with this army in in the field. And what I've sort of started to come to appreciate about what House of the Dragon is doing in that regard is that it is this sly commentary on what an illusion all these people's power is. Like, because you can lose or gain power due to a misunderstanding, due to mishearing something on someone's deathbed, due to the fact that you're just like, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and say, Corliss didn't really want it this way. Or even if he did, fuck Corliss, he's dead. Which I want to talk about whether or not like that was the best way to handle that. So it's just been a really interesting thing, Joe, where I think that this show is more leaning into the ideas of what, like, how thin the the thread is that binds people to power,
2: yeah, no, and I think that's really true. And i I mean, that's one of the we've talked about the many, many interpretations of everything Helena has ever said. And in last week's episode, one of the you know, her she was talking about hands moving wheels and threads, black threads, green threads. And I think one solid interpretation of that is, yeah, how, tenuous all of this is on a, on a knife's edge like how everything could go one way or another and i think what really underlines that for me in this episode is Rhaenyra and Alicent in that moment at the end of the dinner when Rhaenyra, when Alicent's like, "You just got here, stay. We're friends." And Rhaenyra's like, "I gotta drop the kids off in the Volkswagen, but I'll be back." You yeah. know? and I'm just but like, "But I'll take the sports car back." Yeah. I was like, "Stay." You know, it's like there's constantly these these almost moments, especially for these women who we've seen as go from the closest of friends as young girls to where they are now, where there's been so many moments where it's like almost reconciliation. Yeah, and even
0: the fact that like Vayman is so outright defying Viserys in front of Viserys in front of Viserys's entire court and then in turn gets his head chopped off in front of the entire court and kind of nobody does anything. You know, it's it's all kind of like this is just playing out, this is the theater of power that we're kind of involved in, but nobody nobody arrests Damon for chopping off Otto mem- makes
1: one very feeble. Oh, he's pitch like, un- to un- him. disarm that man. <laughs> yeah. um, Mostly because he's clearly afraid of of Damon uh, and, and Where all else i slice next. Yeah.
2: yeah. Just really quickly, Chris, I would just advise that next time you do a very public crime, you have a good quip ready because oh, Damon's yeah. saying he can keep his tongue.
1: It was great. I think
2: <laughs> it's the best defense <laughs> he could have. Oh, ah, God. Damon. Now,
0: so the, the episode starts and they're like, guys, the triarchy. And <laughs> somebody, someone got Corliss, he's got blood fever, etc. And they're like, well, he should be here in three days. And Renice is like, cool, I'm gonna leave and go to King's Landing. And we're gonna have this discussion about whether or not like who's gonna take over Driftmark, even though there's no death certificate on my husband. So what's going on here? Like Corliss are do you do, I mean, is Corlis's fate still up in the air, or is this another great misunderstanding that shifts the balance of power?
1: You know, Renice isn't at the dinner. That's true. On that tight timeline to get home yeah. <laughs> and see uh, what Corliss's fate is. I I think this connects actually completely to the last question you just asked, Chris, about the illusion of power and how thin that line is because it's like the it's the the, the famous varus quote right power resides where men believe it resides it's a trick it's a shadow on the wall so the second anybody has the opportunity to cast another shadow instead they will and that i think is like the the really especially given the conclusion with viserys our guy I think that is like the key takeaway of this episode. Everything that's happening with Corlys and with House Velaryon, with much love and respect to House Valerian, is a microcosm for what can then happen. Right. A preview. At scale. The yeah. coming attractions. Yeah. And like, yeah. I th- exactly. And I think that that's why... Viserys obviously enters the room in the first place, goes down to the throne room, which like, obviously we must talk about. <laughs> because Rhaenyra comes to him in the dead of night and begs him. To stand up for her. To, yeah. to support her claim and her children because of this, you have you have put this burden on me if you still believe. Show up. But in the face of that challenge, in the face of those petitions, like, what, is, what does he say? He says, I must admit my confusion. Yeah. <laughs> I do not understand why petitions are being heard over a, a settled succession. You just then apply that to everything happening with House Targaryen, right? Like, when... When Vaimond has the gall to say to him, and this, I think, also connects to your Stepstones question, because, like, how was that positioned initially earlier in the season? And more broadly, those conversations about, like, needing to respond to a challenge. You can't let anybody think that you're weak for a second. And so the gall... Of of screaming that the king has fucked up his own house, but won't do the same to House Velaryon, calling those kids a ba- calling those kids bastards, screaming it. When Viserys has sworn that if anybody did that, he would take out their tongues, calling the heir to the Iron Throne a whore, a whore. in yeah. the throne room, in open court. Say yeah. it, say it. Like on the one hand, I am I was impressed that Viserys found the strength to stand and pull his dagger. But anything short of what Damon did would have been almost unfathomable in the face yeah. of that because it's just such an affront.
0: And Renée, you know, wasn't like, oh gosh, my brother-in-law. She was just like, Phew, good, that guy's gone.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. It feels like no love lost there, honestly. Yeah. Um, can, okay, can we talk about the long walk? By yeah, the please. Way? So
0: yeah. that was probably, in, in some ways, the set piece of the episode. And in some ways, the set piece of the season so far, dragons accepted was this moment where Viserys enters the throne room, Otto is feeling his oats sitting on the Iron Throne, and the show... The
1: way he leans forward.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh and it, it, I think it goes from something kind of unintentionally funny to something quite, quite beautiful and touching. So, Joe, oh, yeah. what, what were your thoughts on
2: that moment? I was like hooting with laughter, and then I was openly sobbing, genuinely, <laughs> when when he drops the crown, uh, in this like beautiful parallel of you know Damon and the Driftwood Crown and all sorts of stuff. like he drops the crown and Damon picks it up. He looks up and it's Damon, like I, I you know, and then and then I thought I thought. Patty Constantine was extraordinary and the VFX team extraordinary in this episode. I also thought Matt Smith was incredible in this episode. And so for the the moment when he says, "Come on." I just like that's that's the height of this whole season for me this complicated constant complicated relationship between these two brothers but how Damon has always been like you can talk shit about my brother I can talk shit about my brother but, but you can't go. like I just wanted to be by his side helping him like that's all I ever he, all he ever wanted was for to say come and be by my side and help me and the fact that Ranira said it to him last week was this like big moment where he's like yeah I just wanted to be your your second and and like when Viserys says in the first episode, I don't think Damon even really like wants the throne. He doesn't want to do that. Like the actors have backed that up in every interview. They're like, yeah, Damon doesn't want the throne. Yeah, like that's not what he wants. Like he wants maybe proximity to power, but he doesn't like he's not you know power hungry for the throne, and he genuinely loves his brother. And they've had conflict after conflict in that very room. You know, and so to have him show up at that moment, absolutely gutted me. And he had seemed sort of appalled by
0: by Viserys in this episode up until this point. Like when Venera is like lovingly kind of doting on him, When they first go into his sick room, like I felt like Damon was a little bit more like, let's get what we need out of this politically. Like let's let's inform Um, him about certain things. I think so. That was my
2: take. Like for me, it was almost like hard for him to look at Viserys. Anytime he looked at him, it was difficult. He says, "Brother," when he first sees him. Right when. Uh, Viserys brings up your favorite um, topic, the Triarchy, and he's like, "I thought we won that war." Yeah, Damon looks so embarrassed. Because he's, he's just like, sort of "You like, just
0: obviously have been like on like, Milk ah, of the Poppy for but, five years, right?" And it, yeah. Well, but
2: he's also just like, "I fucked that up." Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, I did that. I I got us into that. And and then I want to hear everything that Malice has to say about this. But I think the last thing I want to say about the long walk, as like funny and then poignant as it was, as great as. Patty Constantine's, like, bodywork was and all of that, we've talked a couple times about the various, like, important long walks that these characters have taken in this season. Rhaenyra covered in boar blood, Alicent in her green dress, Daemon in the Driftwood crown as he walks into the throne room. And so I just like these moments for all these major characters and what it means for them in terms of, like, what does power look like? What kind of power is important to them? It's important to Viserys to do this walk on his own wearing the crown, all that sort of stuff. Um, You know, whereas later he's brought in on a litter. I'm like, where was that litter like earlier, you know? But he needed to do it without the milk of the poppy on his own. Um, And the only person allowed to help him is Damon. And I just, I thought that was, I thought this was incredible. What did you think, Mallory Rubin?
1: Yeah, this was my favorite moment of the season for for all the reasons that you just said. I... Perhaps because I am a monster, perhaps this is because how everybody will respond to this moment. I, th- I exactly what you said, Joe, when the doors open and everybody turns, part of it is the comedy of seeing how someone like Otto Hightower reacts, right? The shock and the horror. I've been found out. I've been thwarted. But when we first see Patty of the Opera with that golden mask, and then he waddles and hobbles forward, shuffle by shuffle, presumably missing toe by missing toe. This is why you shouldn't
0: nail down furniture. In a different world, they could have just brought the throne to him. Uh, and no, reversed like, the axis, like, you know? Like
1: Joe said, you know, he's people are coming and offer the king's guard. They're coming. Oh, let me help. No. Eric. He, he had Sir Eric Cargill. Tries. I thought we were going to do the whole pod about Sir Sir Eric and Sir that's, Eric. That's, that's of bar level that's, stuff. You know what? I can't, I can't really weigh in. On I that. do Christmas hype to talk about that. And the way that we shifted in an instant from the, the the awkward comedy of that, but also mixed in the whole time. Like it's not even a shift because you're you're moved and you're touched and you're horrified and you're sad. And you're laughing almost like the way you would at a funeral, where it's like nervous laughter, like you're embarrassed, you shouldn't be laughing. But you're like, oh my God, this is they're really going for it. And when you see after the, the the crown falls, the hand first, and then the 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 you the moment where you see the hilt of the the the, the dragon egg, and like you know it's Damon, and it's just like like also broke down in tears. It was just so lovely, and that come on, and like Joe said, the number of scenes between them very fraught family-defining, decades-defining confrontations between them that took place in front of that throne, and the payoff here was so sublime. Like, this is just, this is the culmination of their relationship and their arcs, and the last thing we saw, granted it was six years ago, but last episode, was, was Damon saying he needs nothing from Viserys, like, rejecting the invitation to return, and this is this is what they needed from each other that whole time. And, like, I think, Chris, to your question about, like, what was Damon's response. response to seeing him, you know, even when, when, they first go in and see him in his sickbed, the way that Viserys is just like whisper breathing, wheezing out Damon's name. Like he is so moved emotionally to know that Damon is there. And then for Ranira for and Damon to present Viserys' namesake to him, like that was just so moving and really lovely and, and wonderful and sad. And it's like deeply tragic because this is the thing. We've been harsh on Viserys much of the season, rightly so. But whether you're watching the show or you're reading Fire and Blood, like, the takeaways from Viserys are he hated dissension. Anytime he exiled Damon, he was ready to welcome him back. Like, he and Rhaenyra would have a fight. She was the lo- the joy of his life. Like, these are the people who are most important to him in the he world. His only child. <laughs> yeah, right. Tough. And the speech that he makes then at the dinner to them when he takes his mask off. And it's it's this inversion of the Alicent, Rhaenyra, now they see you as you are moment mm. where he's using that idea of like, let's see each other as we are and try to find understanding and cohesion and strength in that instead of division. And the just absolute tragedy of this like final desperate effort to bring the people in his life together and for that to be his legacy after Jaehaerys's reign and v- Viserys' reign largely defined by peace. Like, this debilitating sadness that he knew that the peace was not maintained inside his own house. And he keeps, like, muttering these little things throughout the episode about how he's sorry, how he needs to fix it. It's just so heart-wrenching
0: and sad. Yeah, I mean, it's also, I think sometimes when you're in the, in the throes of the episode and you're seeing... Helena and, and Aegon to, sitting there and you're just like, this is just so twisted. It's yeah. hard to like kind of negotiate the fact that like, so this is entirely because Rhaenyra and Harwin were together off screen, essentially, which is, you know, like this, this romance that birthed these kids that have like essentially become the sticking point for the peaceful succession of this family. I don't know and it's part
2: of it it's part of it but that yeah. was already it was already in the mix like yeah. before Harwin Strong Otto and more significantly his brother Hobart were like yeah. there's They're a making boy, the play at there's a boy it. king now yeah. like yes. we named a girl because we were desperate and didn't want yes. Damon but there's a boy in the mix now so that was already i think in the but water but in a
0: world where almost everyone right. can do pretty much anything they want she can't have kids by this guy you know, and the and and or at least those kids can't be in line for succession, right?
2: I will say, like, I we we've talked a little bit about this idea that they cast House Valerian as, um, you know, it's a black house, it's a mixed race house, and and how interesting that is in this very episode when Vayman is like, these kids who look nothing like me cannot have my House Valerian has stood proud for eons mm. and you're going to put these kids right. like yeah. all you know on our throne and um i think it's really cleverly underlines this idea of now just extrapolate that out to like these these kids who don't look they are as targaryen as their uncles as uncle aemon and uncle aegon but they don't look it yeah. and that's that's a big issue for for a house that is so proud of its silvery blondness that considers itself gods among men. Now, of course, it's the high towers who are pushing this issue, and that is they're pushing it to, you know, help feed their own ambition. But um, I don't know. I think the question of Bloodlines, uh, you know, it's literally the opening credits of the show. I, sure. think, I think it's not quite the same as some of the other you-can-do-whatever-you-want. Yeah. No, I, Landing, I think I mean it know? more
0: almost in, like, the... You know the the unfairness of 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 the world that Rhaenyra finds herself in, and that this guy that she's she's sort of hooked up with has become this albatross that she's carrying around. Whereas, pretty much, I mean, Aegon may be married to his sister, but he's allowed to he's allowed to do whatever he wants, and people cover it up. And you know, obviously, there's there's a lot of like gender inequality going on in in this era of of the story, and and in in most of Game of Thrones. But it, I, I found cool. it fascinating.
1: It's, I think though that was at the heart of the Allison Rhaenyra showdown last week too, right? Like that idea that Allison wields Rhaenyra, that like she can do what she wants, and Allison's mm-hmm. never felt like she could. So I think right. that that is a central tension across these character lines, like in relationships. And Chris, I know you've been throughout the the last few weeks very like very devoted to this idea. Like, couldn't Rhaenyra just say, "Yeah, you're yeah." Guess what? You're all right. Like, what are you going to do about it? Yeah. (laughs) They are three strong boys. Thanks for noticing. And let's move forward. And I think, like, okay, a couple things are true. Uh, Bastards can rise high in the realm. We've seen that across another television show that we've all watched together. There are plenty of examples of that. House Baratheon itself, like, traces its roots to or Baratheon, Aegon the Conqueror's bastard half-brother. Plenty of people who are currently aligned with Rhaenyra know they know this to be true, and they're they have accepted it and decided to move forward with her, including Corliss. Right, like he's not like, "What are you talking about?" He says history remembers names, so people can make their individual choice. There, I don't think it's that. It's that, like Joe was just noting, the push from the high towers, and even more so, like a lot of what Otto said to Allison. T- Part of it was gaslighting and manipulation, but part of it was true, was the realm, and this was what Renee said to Rhaenyra in episode two, like, the realm at large. There would be people across the realm who would not be ready for Rhaenyra, who would not want it. Right. And there would be people across the realm who would be ready to support Aegon. And so, this, an, an acknowledgement of her of her children's parentage... Is an, it's a delegitimization of their claim. It weakens their claim, and thus it weakens hers. Like, think of the moment when Viserys said, like, go, like, sure up your line, sure up your succession. It would cost her their biggest and most important ally in House Valerian. Obviously, that's complicated already. It, we talked about the Faith of the Seven earlier. It would risk inciting the Faith. Yeah. Like, think about in Game of Thrones, every time we're walking through the streets of King's Landing and adherents to the Faith are shouting about the abominations yeah. of 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 incest, but also bastardry, right? So it would give Alicent and the Greens a leg Everything off. Everything
0: that they needed. If and she just was like,
1: opening for more. Get off my back for about more. this. Yeah. 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 There, there's this line um,
2: in the book around this time about baby Viserys. Yeah. Uh, and about how his dragon never hatched and that the Greens use this as sort of uh, implicate. Even though Viserys is like, baby Viserys, Rhaenyra and Daemon's kid, Is very obviously a Targaryen, very blonde baby, right? All that sort of stuff. But the fact that his dragon egg never hatched, like the High Towers, the Greens will use sort of any excuse to undermine, and so it's like they'll 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 attack it from both ends. And one of the ends that they'll attack it from is these Targaryens aren't Targaryen enough. I think that's why it's so important that we open with Jace struggling over learning High Valyrian. You know what I mean? It's just like is that these guys just aren't ready for prime
0: time. Yeah, um, I feel like, as usual, it's difficult to ask about what comes next because we have some sense of what comes next if we read the books. So we can just leave it there. I feel like this show is certainly revving up for an exciting last two episodes. We'll be back with you on Sunday night, next Sunday night, to talk about episode nine, the penultimate episode of the first season. Mallory and Joanna will be with you on Tuesday for a deep dive on this episode and 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 all the episodes uh, on House of R on Ring of Andy and I will hit it. We were produced as usual by Steve Allman. Any closing thoughts?
2: One quick thing I want to say for our beloved pal, Andy Greenwald, who is struggling with the show, and I love him and I respect his his, uh, struggle. Um, He was asking for relatable content. Here's my favorite, most relatable content moment from this episode. Rhaenyra naming her kid Aegon, which in the books which in the book really pissed Allison off. Like that is, that is actually genuinely relatable content. I think I've heard of families being like, uh, you stole my baby name, you know, the Viserys sort of
0: walk to the throne is very much Andy completing a 5k, you know, like it's just <laughs> like, it's like, what. You <laughs> um, thanks so much for doing this with me. I can't wait to talk to you about, about next week. So we'll see you then.